0: Welcome to the Sports Epreneur Podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide, a Kessource production. In this episode, I chat with Jeff Duden, former football player at App State University and one of the best youth sports coaches around. Jeff is the founder and former CEO of AdvantaClean. He started that business in 1984, and in 2019, he exited AdvantaClean. Today, he is the founder and CEO of Duden Partners and author of the new book, Discernment. In 2017, he was featured in the hit reality TV show, Undercover Boss. Jeff is full of experience, sports knowledge, and values. Let's get into this episode with Jeff Duden. Sportsypreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur, or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide. We didn't talk about this yesterday, but your background in sports, your coaching, your mm-hmm. days at App State. Yeah. My parents met at Ohio State. And so I grew up a big Buckeye fan. And it's funny because I remember the day App State beat Michigan <laughs> September 1st, 2007. That was crazy. I remember that because <laughs> Ohio State was struggling with Youngstown State. Like it was a tough game. We're like, what is going on here? And then they pulled away late third quarter. Yeah. And then you look on and you see Michigan really struggling and you're like, they'll get through it. But mm-hmm. it was cool. I remember I was in Boone some years later and I said that it, all the signs are, I bet you know where Boone, North Carolina is now. <laughs> yeah. I love that.
1: Two of my favorite jokes that came out of that were Michigan needs new car, preferably less miles <laughs> because <laughs> Lloyd Carr was their coach. Oh yeah. And then how do you shock a Wolverine? And then you just need one double A. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Those are good. I'm going to keep those forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the year too. Michigan wasn't like... That wasn't like an average year for them. All their guys had come back to win the national championship, beat Ohio State, and then they lose to App State right off the bat. I mean, that was Jake Warren's year.
1: Yep. They were uh, ranked five going into the opening week. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So I was standing on the sidelines of practice with my young son. Okay. And I was standing there with coach Jerry Moore. And we were watching practice and it was an unusually hot day in Boone, North Carolina. We, we were up there camping as a family and we just swing by practice and we walked down on the field. And we're standing in the corner of the end zone and they're going ones versus twos, ones versus ones. And for two hours up and down the field at a fever pitch, they're punting out of the end zone where we were standing. And I remember Coach Moore saying... It's two minutes to go. We're up by so many points at Michigan, and we've got to get the ball out of her. Like they were going through game scenarios. Yeah. And I came back from that camping trip, and I have good friends that were Michigan alums and really raving fans, and they were giving me a hard time sure. before the game. And I said, You're probably right. I'm sure that Michigan's going to take care of business. I said, But they think they're going to win. Yeah. Like it was so clear to me. The preparation and the belief that they had, like it wasn't a fluke. Like they went in there thinking that they could win that football game, and and uh, there's an incredible lesson inside of that.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, Coach Moore was that your coach when you were there? It was okay. when
1: I went to App State in 1989 in January. I was recruited by Sparky Woods, and Sparky Woods was recruited away within the next month to be the head coach of South Carolina. So they did an emergency search, and they found Coach Moore and his staff who had been at Texas Tech, and they brought in the whole team. So I think there's a special relationship when a new coach shows up, and it was my first semester and it was their first semester, and everybody was new and they didn't know anybody. So they would have us over at their houses, uh, the coaches would, because they were new to town just like everybody else was. So yeah, I was there for his entrance and first season.
0: Yeah. Was that transition of you're getting recruited by one coach and the next thing you know, leadership changes? I mean, as a young person, like coming into it, are you freaking out? Were you thinking of like, hey, I got to change my mind? Like now you're getting into decision making and something just maybe got rat a little bit, or how did that go for you?
1: Look, Eric, I was so happy to be there. Okay. <laughs> I was just, I was so happy to be somewhere and have. Great athletic gear and three squares a day and everything. But what was different is they had recruited me. I was a pass-catching tight end. Mm-hmm. And their Sparky Woods offense was a, an I Pro offense. And their tight end was the number one receiver in their system the previous year. And it was a, kind of a split-out slot receiver. And he graduated early. And so they were left with this gap. So they went out and recruited a kid from Navy. They recruited. And I was playing at a junior college in Chicago at the time. They recruited from the JUCOs. And the conversation. I went out to Boone for my visit. Sparky Woods flew home with me. We had dinner with my father, and I had an offer on the table from Rice University. And he said, "You can go to Rice, and it's a great school. I don't think they won a game last year. You may play, you may not. You've got two years left. If you come to Boone." I'm pretty sure that you'll play and have an opportunity to play and you'll have a good experience. And for me, that shows you where my head was at. My decision-making was, oh, well, I want if I'm going to go somewhere, I want to play. So I did. And I was looking at that position as a good fit for me. And then when Coach Moore came in with his staff, it was a toss sweep, the yeah, yeah. Toss sweep. You get your guy. Option. Yeah. So <laughs> my blocking skills really accelerated in that offense, but I still was able to get the job and play. So it yeah.
0: worked out great. It hit the weight room probably. So you get to App State and I heard you talk about this in the intro of Undercover Boss show you're on 2017. And you talked about how that was the change for you. Like when you got to Boone, when you got to App State, things change. Obviously, we'll get into maybe a major change perhaps after that. But what was it about? Was it being on your own? Was it being a part of an incredible football program? Was it the mountain air? Like What was going on that made the big change for you? Well, so what's not talked
1: about a lot in my background is that I graduated from high school in 1986. I was a basketball player, but basketball wasn't going to happen for me. I picked up football my junior year and ended up doing well. Not a good player, but catching a lot of passes and really got excited about the sport. So I walked on to a a four-year school. I walked on to the University of Northern Iowa in Cedar Falls, which was a Division I football program, and didn't put the work in. realized that I had a lot of finishing to do as a football player, but also as a student. And I don't exactly remember what my GPA was freshman year, but it wasn't... I think we had a meeting and everybody decided that I probably shouldn't come back. Let's put it that way. So I went back home to Chicago and there's a really good junior college near my hometown there in the Chicagoland area called Harper Junior College, which was a football factory and a very good program with good coaching. And usually every starting sophomore would get a scholarship out of Harper College. So I enrolled there and I worked hard in school to get some of the core classes that I needed. I wasn't particularly strong in math, so I had a lot of work to do there. Took a lot of fluff classes too, but had a good career and really, for the first time, learned how to block, learned a lot about football. And from there, I was able to get the scholarship out to Appalachian State. So when I got out to App State, the reason that it was a turning point for me was, I mean, it was my third shot. And yeah. I what I realized was is, there wasn't going to be a fourth shot. So yeah. I had to make it work. And I remember sitting in my counting 101 class and I was this knucklehead. You talk about a mullet. I had a bullet, right? Uh-huh, yeah. it, so it was, it was shaved hard on top, long in the back. I mean, just angry at the world type looking guy. And I walk into this class accounting professor would give me, Dr. Forsyth, would give me a hard time. When we were talking about the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, he would say, that Jeff, that's not the Southeast Conference, just so you know. (laughs) So he gave me a hard time. And then on the first test, I got a 95. And he called me up there and he said, Jeff, this is one of the highest grades in the class. And it was really at that point, I remember it so clearly, because I don't think I'd ever gotten a good grade before none that i remembered i really didn't apply myself in high school first year of college same junior college i worked i had to take night classes i mean i really had a lot of makeup to do but that was really going into it and i thought to myself i said wow i can actually do this and it was a real life changing moment for me in terms of i'm not a complete idiot I can do this. And I always like to read. I mean, that's the one thing I always did growing up is I read everything I could get my hands on. And I think ultimately that's kind of what saved me in terms of,
0: yeah. When did you start? That's an important thing because you talk about bad grades and I was thinking to myself, well, is it because you didn't apply yourself? So it sounds like that was it. Like you didn't take it serious. Did you struggle with learning at all? Was it partly that you didn't because you were reading a lot?
1: Yeah, I had a, in high school, my counselor, my guidance counselor brought me in and I threw down a 26 on the ACT but my grades were low and okay. it's just like your grades don't match your test yeah. score. You shouldn't have a test score that high. Not that that's that high, but
0: for somebody throwing
1: down a 2.0. Yeah.
0: yeah. So it was just applying myself. Did this time when you finally got, you got your third opportunity in essence, you hear the phrase, you burn the boats, like this is it. Like you gotta mm-hmm. take the island, you're burning the boats. There is no going back. Does this set you up? And, and that's part of the changing point to say, there is no stopping you at this point to keep going yeah. forward that you're going to find. And you talk a lot about opportunity. We'll get more into that. Was that like when you get to the root of it, it's like that's what set you up for the future because you did burn the boats and you realize you can do it.
1: It was a one-way trip. My mom had a 1978 Buick LeSabre with a ragtop that was kind of peeling off. And I she gave me that. I drove it from Chicago to top of the mountain in Boone, North Carolina. I parked it in student parking on top of the hill and I never went back to get it. It was a one-way trip. And uh, yeah, it's really I think fear and as you start to look around and you say at some point, it's different for everybody, I guess, but it's like, man, I really need to get going. There's a lot of exciting things out here if you can only apply yourself and try. And it was The first summer up there that I had to solve for money. So I started the painting business. And I think that first year, my partner and I, who was my roommate, and he was just tired of me wearing his sweaters. So he's like, dude, we got to get, we got to get some money because you're wearing all my clothes. And I'm like, all right. So I had worked multiple jobs growing up, lots of trades, concrete, painting, moving. And I started to, I said, well, we can. I know how to paint because I worked as a painter. So we can get some paintbrushes and a ladder and we can paint. And that's what we did. So we, the first job we did was with the football office's secretary's house. And then she's like, wow, they did a good job. So then we got another couple of houses. I think we did $8,000 that first summer, which wasn't a lot, but we met the apartment runners who ran student housing. And so we, did a couple jobs for them. And then the next summer they like, we'll give you as many of these apartments as you can do. So we put together a team. And I think that first summer we did $59,000 wow. and,
0: and
1: then or 56. And then the next year we did $79,000. And, and you're running this you know, the
0: whole time. So you're going out and finding guys to help you out.
1: Yeah. What was great about it was the leases changed in May and they changed in August. So there was a two week period around those times where they needed hundreds of apartments painted. Sure. We put together a team that could do 12 to 15 a day. And we made the majority of that money as yeah. college students working over the summer.
0: Well, you found that, again, the word opportunity. How do you go in there the first time? Is it because of the connection? You said you eventually hit the network, but the first one, the, the football house, right? How do you get that? I mean, is that sales? Is it just showing up every day? What happened there? I don't recall.
1: <laughs> I know that we would walk past this lady's desk and she was very nice every day. And yeah. maybe we mentioned that we were going to be doing some painting. You got the chance. and
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So here you're in the story, things happen, opportunities you're talking about. We're getting sermon. obviously. Hurricane Andrew comes, we all remember it, or you've heard about it. It's been in history books. What happened then? Like, It's about helping other people. And that's how I saw it. You obviously see it just in... Hearing about your background and hearing you talk, and you're obviously having to help yourself first. Mm -hmm. Hurricane Andrew comes along and somehow there's opportunity in that for you to help others. I don't think it was about any money at that point. Perhaps the money comes as a result of those things because you're doing the right thing for people. Where was that in the timeline of you on your path with entrepreneurship? I have always had a passion for helping people.
1: Growing up, I just always wanted to help. And it's just been something that's been inside of me. So when I received a call from somebody who had painted for us and he had joined a restoration company and they had responded to South Florida and they were looking for people to help them. They had put together a storm response, a few different companies and they called and we were winding down painting business. It was August 24th, 1992 was the date of laws for Hurricane Andrew. I wrote it down a thousand times, so I'll never forget it. So in September, when things were winding down, my painting partner and I said, "Well, we'll go down there and take a look. And we jumped in our little four-cylinder truck with the wooden ladder rack that we had fashioned on it. And I told my girlfriend, I said, I'll be back in three weeks. And we went down there and first we, we were able to secure some of our own projects, but then there was licensing issues. And so we threw in with this company for a year and a half and we cut our teeth in the restoration business. And then with two other gentlemen we started we moved to central florida to honor a non compete that we had in south florida with these guys and we started the business and a year later i moved back to north carolina to start our second location get married and have a family in the carolinas
0: okay how quickly like when you came back to the carolinas to open your second location like did it go sec 2 to 3 to 5 like what was that timeline of you growing the business and what were you feeling at that time if you can remember as you're growing the business from just the beginning,
1: I was excited and optimistic. I tell a story that our first employee that we had was a subcontractor, and he sat down one day and he said, mm-hmm. Jeff, I come in here, I drink your coffee every day, I go out and do the jobs, I bring you the checks back. Maybe I should just work here. And I said, Well, sit down, Ray, let's have a conversation. And the way he tells it is, I talked for four hours. And this was in 1995, 96. I talked for four hours about how we were going to build this company to a national brand. So we always had the vision to do it. So I was excited about it. We opened up a couple of offices in response to some storms on the coast of North Carolina. And after the storm response, we closed them down. So we went from two to three to four, back to three to two. And ultimately, over the next 10 years, I was able to, for different reasons, acquire my partner's percentage of the business. And in 2004, I bought my last partner out. And at that point, we had a, a really strong presence in Central Florida from our original location. The thought leadership was growing out of the Carolinas. And we were the ones that were changing the model from what we were to what AdvantaClean would ultimately become. And I bought out my last partner, hired my first real consultants that we ever hired, who helped us with purpose, vision, mission, values, and really a vision statement. And then in 2005, we had built a a response team with campers and trailers and generators. And when Katrina hit, we were ready. So preparation met opportunity. And we went down to Katrina. We rented a, a big industrial warehouse. We made a village inside of it, sleeping arrangements. And we, proceeded to do tens of millions of dollars of work over the next five years in the Gulf Coast, governmental work, commercial work. And when I was driving back from Katrina, and I remember it very clearly, and this is where I think my discernment and my values started to meet, was I was missing my son's first football season. And it was something that really bothered me because as the business had grown, what I realized in looking at other similar businesses that these owners were constantly on the road. And we were working in the Caribbean, we were working in California and Canada and and Hawaii. And you know we were doing projects all over the place. And these were extended projects. And I said, I don't want that. So I made a decision and I said, on that drive back, I was driving an RV that we had rented. And I came back and I Kind of pulled my team in. And I said, we're going to sell all of our company stores under the franchise model. And we're going to burn the boats and we're going to make it work. And we're going to figure out what it is to be a franchisor. So I called one guy who I knew we were working a lot with. And he bought our flagship location in Charlotte in 2006. We sold some other territories we had in the Carolinas in 07. And then in 08, we sold our original Florida location. And learning what, how to be a franchisor and how those relationships worked prepared us to launch to the public in 2009. And between 2009 and 2018, we opened up over 230 locations in 37 states.
0: And you stayed on. You were CEO during that time, right? I was. Yes. Okay. You were making decisions along the way. You were cutting offices, right? Go from two to three to four and go back you're buying out your partners, Katrina hits, you make a decision to go down there, you realize you're missing your son's football season, you're missing family time. And then you start going to these other decisions of franchising and also selling off other offices. And you're talking about making decisions, discernment that you have and based on the values and values are playing out, just like, wait, family is really important to me. This is like setting the table for, like you are just talking about, for everything that you were doing. And then you're realizing it at the time that you really need to hone in on what it is you're thinking through. How difficult was it in those times? Or how maybe this is even better? Cause it sounds like maybe how easy was it for you to make these decisions? Because at the time you had these values to say, we're gotta cut these offices now. We're not gonna hang on to something. Because I think that's it's an issue that a lot of business owners have. We have it, right? When to this employee is not working out, this office, this idea, this whatever is we got to make a change, or we got to invest in it. We got to double down on it. Did you feel like you just had that ability or? It seems nice in hindsight that it was going well, but it actually was grueling at the time.
1: Well, we've often talked about it, the people that were there through it and said, we threw away a perfectly good and highly valuable restoration business doing tens of millions of dollars a year in pursuit of this franchise model. And it's a good thing it worked out the way it did. (laughs) So as you progress in your career, you'll hear people say, you have to learn how to say no. And it's really important what you learn to say no to and how you decide what's not on purpose with what you want to do. And that's why purpose is really at the top of the house. So the reason that I made the decision when I was driving back from the Gulf Coast was because your true values are the things that you must have and the things you absolutely won't tolerate. So for me, it was a decision because I had learned enough about myself as to what my purpose was in life. And it wasn't being an absentee parent. And it wasn't going to be to be wealthy at the risk of everything. I had to believe that there was a way that everything could get accomplished. But in doing so, you usually have to give something up to get something better. It's hard to keep everything in your hands. And maybe... As you evolve as a business owner, you create models of thought and models of business where you can expand into multiple businesses. And I've learned how to do that. But at the time, especially when you're building, focus matters. And you have to be willing to sometimes give something up to get it. And we had the perfect platform, meaning we had a lot of work. We had incredibly brilliant technical people. We had authenticity in the space. Why wouldn't people want a piece of this business? We had a good brand. We had a great reputation. So why wouldn't franchisees want to say, you know what, I can leverage off what these people have built and build a little piece of that for me in my hometown.
0: During this process, we hear about this, the journey, the the roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship. Are you having, and trying to get in the psyche a little bit, are you having these up and down moments internally? Or how are you dealing with that? Because you're building something massive. And a lot of your decisions are going to impact a lot of different people. How were you handling that? Did you rely back on previous decisions that you had made? Did you rely on like the burning the boats mentality of like, we're just going forward, I'm not going to worry about it? How are you mentally through this phase? It was tough. It was very difficult. So business, there are no absolutes.
1: It is about probabilities. And your batting average over time... And the probabilities of decision that you make are going to determine the quality, success of your business and the quality of your life, hands down. So, how do you inform decisions? And how do you make sure that your decisions are aligned with whatever it is your purpose is in life? And how clear are you about that? And once you can get alignment between you as a business owner, business founder, your business, and all of the people that are in this world with you creating it, if you can get alignment inside of that, then the decisions are easier to check, right? And I really relied heavily when we would have a tough time or we'd be up against a cash crunch or we needed to make a play to make something happen. What I always went back to was I looked at my team and I said, can I count on these people if we go down this path and increase our risk to see it through to the end with me? And for me, it was heavily leaning into this small group of people that that I cared about that had started this with me and really were bought into the vision and when we after we sold the business we had a dinner and there was nine of us there that most of which had been with the company between 15 and 20 years wow. i mean the stories that we told and yeah like it crazy we had a couple of newer people there newer executives that hadn't been there so long and they were like how did you guys survive <laughs> through all that but it's a journey yeah. And there's strain and it's like coaching a football team. When you step across the line, the decision's made. You can't recontract. When you jump into a business, you have to see it through to some sort of conclusion. And you can't recontract. I can't say, oh, well, I'm on the line, but I'm going to decide not to block this play. Right? Yeah. Business is full contact. So as long as you reach that level of commitment to a business... That doesn't mean you don't change. And if a strategy... What is that Brian Tracy quote that's so awesome? He says, the best way to ride a horse is in the direction that it's going. But if the horse is dead,
0: get off. <laughs> I love that. And you don't get it back, that sports analogy use, if you're not blocking and the play ends and your quarterback gets sacked and it's your fault. You don't get to say, oh, hold on a second. I got to redo that play, right? You don't get it back. And obviously, you're playing football and coaching football. And I think you coached football for many years at different levels and you sports and you use a lot of what you learned. And then you learned a lot from the kids. I've coached you sports as well. And it's amazing what you learned. First of all, if you coach little kids, like really little kids, you realize the attention span is just not there. So I always laugh when I see these coaches and they're talking to these kids and they're going on these long tangents and the kids are like looking around, they're picking their nose or doing whatever they... But it's you learn a lot about yourself and about leadership. And you're already applying it to the business world. What types of teams did you coach? Imagine you're coaching football, you're coaching your kids, you're coaching other kids. I think you're at Southlake High School here in Charlotte, if I'm not mistaken. Like, What was that experience like for you of coaching youth sports? And maybe like, what ages did you love coaching the most?
1: I liked them all. I did everything from basketball, which I knew a lot about. I did football. And then I learned baseball. And I did a lot of baseball coaching. My kids played baseball. And we would take anybody. We we weren't the kind of team that would maneuver to get the kids on the team. I mean, we would go through the draft process, but there would be always be kids that maybe the other t- people didn't want and we'd take them. And I really, over time, developed this method for peaking a team at the end of the season. And that was the number one. That was our purpose was we will all be the best we can be on the last day of the season, whenever that is. Because your last day of the season is always your last game. Yeah. And it's either the championship or it's a loss, right? I mean, it's one of the two because almost everybody makes the playoffs yep. and you're either going to lose or you're going to go out on a win. And there's only one team that goes out on a win. And I wrote a book called, Hey Coach, that goes through some of the methods that we learned. So we would come up with, first of all, we ran a very inclusive program where we would invite all of the parents to participate and we would coach the parents to coach the kids rather than you drop your kid off and don't talk to your parents, right? Right. Because... We wanted everybody as part of it that wanted to be a part of it. So very inclusive, number one. Number two, we had a set of mantras. We had our 15 commandments. It was a set of player rules, parent expectations, and coaching commitments. And that was how we rolled. And we we laid that out at the beginning of the season. And then whatever we were going to do, we would install everything in the first couple weeks of the season. And then we would drill fundamentals. So we would usually start slow because we weren't focusing on how to win that first game. We were focusing on like, what are the three to five things that are gonna help this kid make their junior high school team? Like, We're gonna focus on that. We're gonna focus on education and fundamentals and culture. So we always had fun because we wanted the kids to finish the end of the season playing fast and loose, not afraid that they were gonna be beat up verbally by their coaches or their kids for making mistakes. If you watched us warm up and you asked me what I like to coach, I mean, we had a lot of success in that 10 to 13-year-old football range. You'd watch our kids. It was like watching a college team. The quarterbacks would be taking their things. The you know, We didn't have them in a line barking at them to do push-ups. Right. I mean, the, the linebackers would be taking their drops. The DBs would be working on their footwork. So they had identity inside of what they did. They knew their responsibilities. They knew their roles. They knew how it all fit together. And man, like every year, we would... Somehow, nearly every year, like we won so many championships just because the kids did it. Yeah. See, I think kids are just as smart as adults. They're just less experienced. And the deal we made was if all the coaches get stuck in traffic and nobody shows up to the championship game, you could do it yourself. So they would take the accountability to learn everything about it. And then over time, we had it kind of broken into thirds. The last third was we would transition the accountability from the coaches to the players. And we would step back. And darn it, if these kids, if you give them the opportunity and you create that white space for them to grow into, if they can't really take ownership of it. And that little bit is the difference that makes a difference when the game's on the line. We always knew as coaches that we needed to be good for one takeaway in a football game and one score. And if we could manufacture that through play calling or blitz or whatever it was, and then the rest of it, it was kids versus kids. Yeah. Like Belichick says, it's about the players. Yeah. Yeah. And we did it in baseball. We did it in basketball. And it was so funny. What would happen over time was, and I remember particularly we were in one draft. There's always these people that would send in notes requesting to be on certain teams. hmm and we'd get to the end of the draft, and there'd be, you know, like seven or eight notes there, and they would start opening them up. And like every parent wanted their kid on our team. Wow.
0: That says a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was. And then we actually had a referee who refed all the games, and his kid was coming into the league. And they were on the field listening to how we coached and how our kids played. And he was a good football guy, and he wanted his kid on our team. And yeah, it's like, does everyone mind if Jeff has the ref's kid? I mean, I...
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's going to. Yeah. That could piss people off. Right.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I got to tell you. And why would you, as a business builder or a business entrepreneur, take the time to do this? Well, I asked myself that question, but it made us better as business leaders because think about it. You have to communicate clearly. There has to be accountability. There has to be an intentional culture that's built inside of this team. You have to give people space to make progress and have control over what they do. Like the lessons learned coaching a bunch of 12 year olds applied directly to your leadership style inside of a business, especially in franchising where you've got 200 little teams of 6 to 10 people out there. Yeah. To me, it was the perfect analogy. And each the business informed the coaching and the coaching informed the business.
0: Yeah. It gets you out of the box too. It gets you out outside, out in the fields. There's a few things going on because you're, you're playing the long game because you're going to start a season off and it might start with losses, but it's going to end with wins. Sure. There's doubt. I saw this. I remember, I can't remember how old my son was and he was playing little league baseball and we were coaching and we had moved up from the double A to the triple A. And when we move up to the triple A, there was already kids that and parents that have already been used to the triple A and the style and the the manufacturing of runs. And this the aggressiveness that took place on the field with the base running event. And we went out the first game and it was actually a close game, but we lost. The parents were sending emails like, you guys don't know what you're doing. It led to this whole thing. And we had responded and it was like, we had all the parents contribute to the practices similar to what you had talked about. And what was funny is at the very beginning, there's a lot of friction on the team. By the end of the year, there was a game. It was a semifinal game and we were down nine runs going into the last inning and we won. They scored 10 runs in this last inning. (laughs) And I'd never seen a Little League fans like just going nuts. And everyone was excited, even the other team. Like They were upset that they had lost. And there was a team party, and there was just going to be a team party. No matter win or lose, there's going to be a team party. We're going to have some fun afterwards. The camaraderie that existed at that point versus the beginning of the season was just like... It was like two different teams. It was different people But there was so much doubt early and you see it in professional sports and you mentioned Bill Belichick. So not a Patriots fan, but you have to watch what they do because they lose a lot early in the season. They're tinkering with the roster a lot early in the season. They're not worried about the first four games. Yeah, they don't want to lose those, but they know they're not going to win the championship in those first four games of the season. There is a lot of doubt that comes in and it relates to entrepreneurship. You start building an idea, you start building a product, you start doing something. People are doubting you, behind you, right? Those letters came to you at a certain point. Those letters weren't there probably early on. Once you built the reputation, perhaps yes, then the letters show up left and right, and the referee some wants to be on your team. The doubt though early on is something that 's real, and a lot of people are dealing with it, whether it 's an existing business that they're coming out with a new idea or it 's a newer business. But that doubt's real, and that'll affect you and that could impact you and it could change your ways. but it sounds like you're talking about if you have the values. If you know what you're doing, if you're going to stick with it, if you're not going to try at least not to listen to that outside noise, you have a chance to overcome it. But I have to imagine you still had some doubt, especially early on when you're just getting going with this before you had your reputation.
1: I think uh, probably my last book will be too stupid to fail. I (laughs) really, I was so committed to it. I just knew that you have to know that there's going to be a path through. If other people have done something before... It's not like we were splitting atoms with Advanta Clean. I mean, there was a lot of people that were in the restoration, remediation, indoor environmental services business. We just had to come up with a really good competitive advantage. And we did. We came up with some really solid competitive advantages that helped our franchise owners win in the marketplace. And and then execution strategy, oftentimes, as long as the ladder's up against the right building and you build a culture that you know what to expect, that what will happen in your absence will happen in your presence, then you've got a team that can win. It's so funny you shared that story about the baseball team because that is almost verbatim the story and, hey, coach, and I'm going to send you a copy of it. Yeah, As long as I get your address, Absolutely. it is like you <laughs> lived it. It is the story. And that's what happens so many times. Well,
0: what's crazy about that story too is my son and he would sit here and say, he doesn't play baseball anymore. He was not a great baseball player, but he came up to bat with two outs and we had already started making this run. And he was the tying run if he got on base. And so I was like, oh my goodness. I was on third base. I was coaching third base there. So I'm the one, you know, sending him home. And I'm like, he's gonna, what if he gets out? Like Ugh. you go through this and it's fine. And he got a hit and he gets on base. And he was young, right? He's jumping up. He doesn't know what to do. When he came, when he eventually, because he got a double, and when he came to third when the next kid, and it took me everything in my power not to grab him and like throw him home, right? Oh, like yeah. <laughs> They were so excited though, that that moment and to being a father and a senior son in that and to get the time run. And then the next kid gets home after that and win the game. But yeah, those stories are what it's all about. I mean, and there's a lot of encouragement in what you said. And we had talked before, you talked about entrepreneurial encouragement. So you're encouraging the kids that you're coaching. You're encouraging yourself, your family. It's a big deal, right? It's motivation. It's something that you're doing for other entrepreneurs that are out there. And you're doing it for even the team. So I hadn't had a chance yet. It's just been crazy the last few weeks. But I watch Undercover Boss with my daughter. We don't watch it all the time, but we watch it. And I always get, I get emotional about it. My daughter does too. And we get excited about the end and what happens. And you know, once in a while, you get those scenes where the person loses their job. But typically, you're finding really good people. And you had a great episode. You really did. And I think I had actually seen it before. And I think is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the last person that the finale is with Barry. That's correct. And gave him his own franchise. And there's a couple of things going on here. First of all, I think it was just awesome that you're on that show. And that was a 2017. So it's right before it sounds like you sold your company. Tell us a little bit about like behind the scenes. Like, is it everything that appears to be, you hear about these types of reality TV shows and obviously things they have to do it. So it's made for TV. Tell me a little bit about just behind the scenes of what it's like to be on undercover boss. Obviously, I need to respect
1: how they do it. But what I can tell you is that in the way that it's done, it was a very honest and the cameras melt away and you're spending time with these people. And it's a pretty honest shake. These are not manufactured situations. Obviously, they have to put people in the spot and there has to be cameras. So so there's a way that they go about accomplishing the show. But as the day wears on, it's just a couple of people having an engagement that you see on the show. Yeah. And we had to sit down as a family and decide. We have a set of family values. They're in the book. It's live fun, be humble, respect others. And we never talked about what we did for a living if people didn't ask or whatever. And this was going to be something that really highlighted the business and the growth. And so we sat down and we said, this could change things in school with the way people view you. And it could if we get this. So, but half the life is showing up. And one of our values is fail fast and move forward and trust yourself to take chances. So we literally went right back to our family values and said, the answer has to be yes to this because it's an opportunity to move the business forward. It's an opportunity to do something that a lot of people don't get a chance to do. But it was a great experience. And it's an interesting world when you step into... I guess, Hollywood or the behind the scene in shows and how shows are produced and things like that. So it was really interesting. And we felt, even though we had zero control over what makes the show, and you never see it until it shows on television. Wow. So us, 250 of our closest friends <sighs> and 7 million viewers all at the same time, seeing it for the first time. But I felt like we had such good franchise owners... And that they would have a hard time landing on problems out there, and down to an episode, down to a a scene, the franchise owners honored the opportunities. They cared about the customers. It was it was a very caring group of people, and it was a pretty low drama episode. But Mm -hmm. there was like all of our segments were extremely good. Sometimes you watch the show and it's like, okay, that one's good, but the other one's filler. Right. We threw out segments. This was their words. You guys are going to throw away segments that other shows would kill to have.
0: Oh, wow. That's a big deal. Yeah.
1: So it was really powerful. And we're very thankful to the people at Undercover Boss and and really to the franchise owners for really using that platform to show the world the incredible owners and employees that we have and the things that we did to help people on their worst day.
0: Yeah. Well, you had emotion on that day where you meet the employees and you're giving very His own franchise, or I think you gave away a Harley and money and trips and and all of this. It's you're obviously looking into their eyes and you're seeing these reactions, and they're seeing your reaction. Just watching it on TV is a big deal, like, and that brings out emotion. But to live Mm -hmm. it and to be the one actually handing it to them, yeah, because it wasn't you were just giving it to somebody. It wasn't they just won the lottery. There was stories behind it, and you knew the stories intimately. Mm -hmm. That had to be. Just like this ultimate moment for you, or just this emotional moment to help these people out in that way. There was a lot of
1: pride in the brand and the people. And I told myself going into it that you're not helping anybody if you're just crying.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you no, know, you're yeah, not. Yeah.
1: Like, look, buddy, you got a job to do here. And it's fine if you get emotional, but you have to see it through. And obviously, you do a show, there's hundreds of hours of tape that goes on the cutting room floor. So there's long days involved here. And there's things that you have to do from a technique perspective to go through all the different aspects of that. So what you see on the show is the best 42 minutes out of 100 hours of filming. So it is long and it it is emotional, but you also have to realize that you're trying to do your best To do something that you don't do all the time Mm -hmm. in front of a camera and try to do a good job so that the right thing happens and not fall apart or snap or do silly things. That, because by the way, everything you do and everything you say, it's going in the show. Fair game. I mean, it's fair game.
0: Yeah. So, well, you're encouraging, talk about before when I brought this up the entrepreneurial encouragement. It's just this entrepreneurial mindset that these people have. I think of entrepreneurship as like a, as a lifestyle and for you to encourage people the way you do in all areas of your life was obviously shown through in that show. And you also talk about rebuilding the middle class, which I'm wondering, as the company that you're leading and then being even on that show and providing at the end the way you provided does that bring about your thought process of this is what we really need to be doing. We need to be rebuilding the middle class. And if we can provide these types of things, was that a moment for you to really think through rebuilding the middle class?
1: It is. And so Duden Partners is our family office, our family business, and we help emerging franchise companies grow. We take everything we've learned in building brands and we'll we'll work with brands to help them get up to speed quicker on what it means to be a franchise business. And we care about entrepreneurial encouragement. We care about employee ascension. Everything's about being better next year when, than you were this year. And if you're an employee, how do you ascend? How do you get better? If you're an entrepreneur, how do you do that? We care about children and family issues. And then we care about rebuilding the middle class. And a crisis will accelerate a trend. So when you get a COVID or you get a recession, you know the middle class is always the one that's taking the brunt of the damage because it's people that are working hard and they're making ends meet and they're they're building a life for themselves and they're moving themselves constantly improving their station in life and small business gets hurt because especially independent businesses non-franchise businesses got hurt more than franchise businesses did because of the leverage and the brand sure. and the support it's important to our country to have a strong middle class. And it's important to urban areas to have entrepreneurial activity in them so that they can create generational wealth. I mean, we need people in minority communities in all areas of this country to be able to build a business and to retain some meaningful wealth or equity and to continue to put that back into the communities from which people come. And we run on our small businesses in terms of number of employees, and everything. We run on small business. So sometimes, depending on what's happening in the broader sense of the economy, it's harder to be a small business person. So that's where we like to work. And and if we can help people improve their lives through entrepreneurship and teach them everything from how to start a business, build a business, even exit and sell a business, how to manage their money, how to be tax efficient, then we're doing something that, that we believe that we can get behind. Because again, we're wired to help people.
0: Yeah, obviously. <laughs> well, it's frustrating too, because there's a lot of ways you can start a business. It's never probably been easier in a way, but it's also never been harder. The little things that you have to do as a business owner that just show up randomly, like you, you're you walking in, you're ready for your day. And next thing you know, you got this statement, you got to... What is this? And, and some people, they might not have that background. Do they have access to a CPA? Do they have access to an attorney? Do they have someone that they can go to? or is their counsel? It's very complicated. And... A lot of the stuff gets thrown to the side. And sure enough, like you said, COVID comes and restaurants, as an example, 16 days cash on hand, and they're shutting down. How are they going to stay in business? And then how do they go about applying for the PPP loan? How do they go about furloughing their employees? You need a team of people. But even just the basic stuff of getting started with the Secretary of State, it's not complicated, but when you have so many other things that you have to do, it becomes very complicated. And you're not probably running out day one and going to hire a bunch of people to go do this for you, Craig, because you don't have cash. And so I think it's awesome that you're out there doing these things. If there's businesses out there, there's people out there that want to help. They're there to help. And that's why I think it's awesome. Is small business, we always talk about, well, we're not Bank of America. We don't have to hire every single person that's going to work for our company. We can form relationships, strategic relationships, outsource, There's a lot of different companies that are out there that can help you navigate this process. And there's consultants and people like yourself, and there's books out there, like your book, Discernment, which you can get on Amazon. And it's a good word. I was looking at it. I was like, well, I want to see how you define it, but the ability to judge well. And you've obviously had to have a lot of discernment over the years and and all the things that you've been doing. When did you come up with the idea to write this book, Discernment?
1: It's a continuation on this coaching theme. So if you're an athlete and you're growing up and you want to be a better left-hand dribbler or basketball player, you work on your left-hand dribble, you work on your footwork, you work on all these things. And then when you get into business, especially with all the noise that's out there now, social media and all the inputs that you can stick in your eyes and ears that can be distracting, what are the fundamental things that you need to train on and to build models of thought so that when you're faced with a scenario that you can make a decision that's more probably going to be beneficial than probably non-beneficial and that's really what it comes down to so i share my thinking around how do i make decisions and over time what are the things that you can do intentionally to build your decision making process and to improve your discernment so that your batting average of decision making improves and, and that's what it is it's everything i do is really about packaging up what I've learned and my experiences and trying to give it to somebody else in a way that they can understand it and use it.
0: That's awesome. So people can get the book on Amazon. Yes. Is that the best place to get the book?
1: That is the best place to get it. You can get the ebook for 99 cents right now. And I would love for people to go to Amazon, just put in discernment, Jeff Duden, it'll pop up. And if you've got 99 cents burning a hole in your pocket, I would love for you to get the ebook down or you can splurge for the hardback or the paperback, whatever you want to do. But the feedback has been really validating thus far. People taking pictures of things in the book or calling me and saying, when you were talking about this, it reminded me that this is something that I'm not doing in my business right now. And I really need to look at it this way. So I think it's helping people. And if it helps a few people make a better decision here and there, then I think it was all worth it.
0: For sure. I think it's important too, when you take 30 years of experience in different stages and you share that, whether it's in a book, on a podcast, in a Mm -hmm. blog post, in conversations, one-on-one with people, with your family, with the kids on the field, it's important. And we need more of that. It's not just the people that you see every single day, the celebrities. It's there's people with amazing stories out there. And I mean, you coming to us and starting the stories with uh, App State upsetting Michigan. Obviously, that's great for everybody. But (laughs) there's so much that goes down that you're sharing on the podcast. And like I said, in your book, it's important that you do this. So what's the best way people can connect with you? Obviously, they can go buy the book on Amazon. What's another way that... Where are you most available?
1: Today, we launched jeffduden.com. And there you can listen to podcasts. You can read blogs and articles. You can have a link to buy the book on Amazon. So jeffduden.com, J E F F D U D A N.com, all one word. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those places as well. Or you can just email me at jeff
0: at duden.me. That's awesome, man. You're everywhere. JeffDuden.com obviously makes a lot of sense. It's the central point. It's your hub. And Jeff, it's been awesome chatting with you and appreciate everything that you brought to the table. I would encourage anyone to go watch your show too. You can find it undercover boss. I think it was season eight, if I'm not mistaken, but we'll link to it here in the show notes. So people can go watch that. It's a lot of fun. Jeff, thank you again for your time and your stories and all your experience. Erica really enjoyed it. Appreciate it. And thank you for having me.